Hello, and welcome to the Spidey Dude Experience. Thank you for watching and listening to, to the show. Before we get started, I wanted to give a big shout out to our patrons at patreon.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Patreon subscribers like Vinkman, Scott, Kylie, Jurgen, Phoenician. Thank you all for your support. And if you want to see what all the fuss is about, head on over to patreon.com slash Network for more information. Be sure to check out our episodes for our other shows, such as ASM Classics. Stay tuned for Season 2, debuting very, very soon. Starring Jack and, and Javi Torillo. Make My Mayday and our newest show, Voices from the Area, Gargoyles Podcast. We want you to let your voice be heard. Leave us a voicemail at 818-925-6631 or leave us an email at SpideyDudeRadioNetwork at gmail.com. Just be sure when you leave that voicemail to tell us what show you're calling about and we'll play it live on the respective show. Also, leave a review on your favorite podcasting catcher. We'll do our best to read it on a show in a future episode. So for those of you listening to the audio version of this podcast, please excuse some visual references and and visual aids and normally our live comments as these shows are live streamed but this particular episode is not live stream it's going to be live stream but it's a pre-recorded episode because i cannot wait for you to listen to this incredible interview with myself neil paul and john mark Mateus. so thanks again for watching thanks again for listening and we'll get started with the program. Be sure to give us a like, a share, and a subscribe. When I started reading comics, there was a backup story that was called The Parker Legacy, where we learned about the, the way that a man called Ben Riley got his name. It was this story, along with the main story by Tom DeFalco, that got me into comics. It was the first comic I ever owned. So one of my bucket list items was to one day interview our guest. And I'm happy to say that Today, we're actually going to be able to achieve that goal. His career spans decades from Craven's Last Hunt to The Child Within to The Clone Saga and Citizen Osborne. His Spider-Man career has been littered with excellence. When Ben was first proposed by Terry Kavanaugh, there was one writer who was very excited to write that character and the idea of it. And now, our guest returns to the writing duties of Ben Riley, the new Ben Riley Spider-Man miniseries, that the first three issues are available now Comicsology, comics, Marvel Comics app, or other fine comic retailers. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce JM JM Dematis. Hello. You almost had it. You I know. almost had it. <laughs> I also want to introduce the rest of the panel. We got Neil Bogenreiter. Hi, I'm a green sweater man in a green room. Um, there's so much green here. I am very sad. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the host of the Comic Binge YouTube channel, Paul Herman. Hello, and I'm. it's extremely an honor to be here with one of my favorite writers. So I'm excited to just wait, lay at his feet right now and just learn. So I'm, yeah, I'm super, super stoked. Super stoked. Well, All I right. have nothing to say, so you're going right. to leave. All right, I'll leave that. <laughs> yeah, I do want to say one thing, though. Ben Riley number three is not out yet. It's coming okay, out it's about the 23rd. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it... it I think when we're releasing this, it'll be around that oh, same. Okay. Thing. All right, that's good. That's good. Yeah, that's not out yet. It is coming out soon. You need to. Everybody needs to uh, pre-order the last several issues because it's been really great. Um, so we always start um, most of the interviews that I've done. I always tell people, tell your superhero origin story. I know you started off as an editor at Marvel, and yeah. then you. Tried 
to forget to write. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got that from Marvel's The Untold Story. They admit, you know, mentioned in an offhand comment that you were editing, and I was like, I don't remember him editing. But yeah, I've done some editing over the years, but never for Marvel or DC. No. Didn't you start on Marvel Team Up? Well, at Marvel, let's see. I mean, I did a few, but my first ongoing gigs at Marvel, my first one was Conan the Barbarian, believe oh, okay. right after Roy Thomas left, was just talk about an intimidating gig for a brand new writer. Right. You know, I broke in at DC uh, first, and then, then uh, Jim Shooter offered me a contract, and I went over to Marvel. But I was still, you know, young and unknown and in many ways unskilled. Um, and uh, so the first gig I got was Conan, which, like I said, was incredibly intimidating. Um, you know, I, I, I love that book and I love, you know, Revere Roy Thomas's writing on that book. So that was really, that was a tough one. And, uh, and then I guess the next ones were Captain America and Marvel team up, I think were probably, and the defenders. Those are the three that I got after that mm-hmm. all around the same time, I think. So Marvel team up was my, you know, I, I only realized recently it was not my first Spider-Man story though. So my first Spider-Man story may be the most obscure Spider-Man story you, you're, uh, you'll ever talk about on this show. When I was still at DC, but Jim Shooter, you know, liked my work and he was he would throw me little jobs, you know, to do for Marvel. Um, so one of the things I guess Marvel was doing at that time, they had their writers writing plots for short, like six, eight page stories for France. So the plot would go to France a French artist, uh, uh, I think I think Gerard Fortone was his name, who did a lot of them, certainly did the ones that I wrote. I think I wrote at least two, maybe three of them. Um, and then a French a French writer would do the dialogue. I can wow. completely forgot about this. I mean, for like decades, forgot it ever happened. And something came up on social media and I went, wait a minute, I think I did one of those. And you, the great thing about the internet was I dug around and I actually found a few pages of art from one of the stories. You know? Oh wow! I saw, I saw so, it on your, I saw it on either on your Twitter or someone else's. I remember seeing it on Twitter, definitely. Yeah, I, was, sure I, I did it. Uh, it was on my Twitter. I'm sure. I'm sure. So it was like, oh wow! So I started with Spidey before I even realized, you know. Wow. Uh, but in terms of my first official gig, it was like at, at, at DC. My first Batman story was a Batman coloring book. I remember, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, you start where you can start. When you start now, you will take any gig whatsoever. You know, if 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 the gig was to write a story on the wall, I would have written it on the wall. You know, um, and then so Marvel Team Up was my first my first official introduction to Spidey, and I think around the same time, DeFalco had me dialogue an issue of Amazing Spider-Man that Denny O'Neill had plotted. So that. But but my main gig then I did Marvel team up I think for like three years. Yeah, I recently reread. Uh, I've been reading Spider Man chronologically for like three years now. Just you know wow. over time. Yeah, and I got to your Marvel team up stuff. And Marvel team up, it, it, not before you like has not was not my favorite title. Like it just was very inconsistent with. And Conway, I loved his stuff, but you had a story. I'm pretty sure it was the Valkyrie and Spider Man yeah. together. And I it was really, kind of I really like that story. As I recall it was kind of played for. Was, but there was, but there was also like a. Like there's a, a serious tone to it. I thought maybe too. Maybe I'm misremembering the story, but it was a Valkyrie story. But the one I remember distinctly that was just bonkers out there was like you had like Spider-Man traveled like the Middle Ages, like spiritually oh, or King, something. Oh, he, no, he met King Cole. Oh my God, that was amazing. I'm like, I remember. Re- I even tweeted at you. I was like, this is incredible. It's just like it was the most bonkers story. I loved it. Was, it. it was, yeah, it yeah. Was bonkers. You know, it, was great. it took a while on Marvel because Mar- you know the team up books were a really specific animal. Right, and you had to have these two characters, and you had to have something happening, and it always felt 
slightly fraudulent because you know the book only existed really for commercial reasons. It didn't exist yeah. to deepen and expand the character. Gotta make money. But a couple of couple of things as I went along happened. You know, like it took it took me about six months to figure that book out. And Herb Trimpy drew probably the first six months. So oh, Herb, Herb, yeah. Herb, who was brilliant, never got the benefit of me figuring the book out. And then Carrie Gamble came along, and uh, right when I figured it out, and what I realized was, okay, we're not going to affect the broader Spider-Man story here, but I have to make sure that every issue has emotional depth and it's significant to the mm -hmm. characters in that story it may not change comics forever or change right. spider-man forever all the things we like to slap on the covers you know right and from that point on i found the tone of the book that i you wanted did. you know mm -hmm. and and did some stories that i really can look back on and go hey that was pretty good you know professor power of course, we also introduced the frogman which like you know if you, once i've introduced the frogman my career was over right he has a frogman question later for you just i had to go out and buy that figure because I didn't get one oh, for free. Um, <laughs> and they didn't get White Rabbit one either, did they? Yeah, I, I, but I had to go. I bought that one too. Yeah, yeah they're both, they're both they're, sitting over there. We're gonna have to get in contact with Hasbro to, to, to send you guys these. I still need to get mine. I ended up buying uh, Ron Friends, the Thunderstrike figure that came out, um, and sent it to him. So uh, you know, I. Yeah. But like, anyway, so Marvel Team Up was where, was where it all started for me in terms of Spider-Man. Cool. Well, where it all started for me, of course, was a kid reading the book. But you, know. <laughs> you, you were, you know, reading it in the in the sixties when it first came out, and and obviously connected with you. What is it about Peter and by proxy Ben that that connects you can connect with so much? Uh, I've often said, and I, I think that in terms of mainstream, you know, comic book characters, these these classic characters that Peter Parker is the most psychologically and emotionally real character out of all of them. He's just, I, you know, no matter who's, I always say, no matter who's writing this book, no matter what your background is, there's something in Peter that we all relate to. He is really an everyman character. And I know he's, he's really smart and science and all that stuff. And I, 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 am never comfortable with, with super scientist Peter, you know, when he's like so super genius and all that stuff, because I feel like it takes away from the everyman quality of the character. He, to, in my mind, he was a really smart kid, but he was a nerd and he was a regular guy, you know, and, and, and he had all the frailties and foibles that we all have. And, and he was real and believable. And we, like I said, every I think you know, if you talk to any Spider-Man writer, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish, whether you're Catholic, or you're black, or you're white. We all connect to Peter, and we all relate to Peter because um, he's real. Hmm. And what's great about Ben to me is he's Peter, but he's not because he got twisted and sent off on a very dark journey, especially during those five years of the lost years. So he has at his core the essential Peterness, but he's taken a path that Peter never had to take. However much Peter may have struggled and suffered in his life, he's never gone through what Ben has gone through. He didn't have his identity ripped away in that way, you know, and, and have to basically be in exile for five years on the road. Um, and it makes him a darker and in some ways deeper and more, more interesting character. But I love them both, you know. I don't think of these people, I don't think of them as characters. I've spent so much time with them that I really think of them as people. And, and it's like, because I know their psyches inside out. I know them better than I know some of my closest friends. So they feel like real human beings that I know. Can I follow up on that real quick? Because um, I actually want to ask this earlier or later on, but actually a perfect time to bring it up. Talk about psyches. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you as an, a very amateur writer myself, you know, you know, for someone who gets voices of characters and Peter 
it's amazing. And not every writer, I think, has, has been great with this. But, like, I think all the great Spider-Man writers, the solid Spider-Man writers, have been have able to give Peter a consistent voice. And how, like, where do you find Peter's voice? Like, how, like, in dialogue and, and, and his emotions and things like that. Or not emotions, but how he expresses himself. Because, you know, I, again, reading chronologically, there is a consistency with, with Peter for the most part. And it's just amazing to me how, how writers like yourself are able to like tap into that. Like you're, you're different eras. So it's really impressive how you're able to capture that through different times of your life. How do you get into the character's head and then bring that onto page and have him voice, um, emo, uh, yeah, expressively like that? And like, and how do you get into that mode? You know, you have to find, there's this line between yourself and the character, but when you're right. writing the story, that line dissolves. And the line between... So, so well, a character like Peter Parker, okay, I know that character because I was reading th those books my whole life. So do I right. do know him. But in order for it to really work and feel authentic, you have to pour yourself into that character. Amen. Yeah. You have to pour your own struggles and your own pain and your own joy and all of that so that so that you and the character kind of merge. And it gets filtered through through Peter. But, you know, so much, so much of what I've done, and sometimes when I didn't even realize it, you know, I've done autobiographical comics, you know, that are literally about my life. But some of the stuff I've done with Spider-Man has been just as autobiographical. The readers don't know it. Hmm. You know, Craven's Last Hunt came out of a period of my life that was very, very difficult. And I realized after the fact that each of those main characters in that story was a representation of something going on in my own psyche, some struggle I was going yeah. through, you know? So it's all autobiographical. It just is. I love it. You know, and right. I think it's true of every writer, whether they're trying to consciously do that or not. I like to say if you if if uh, you're, you're if you knew Edgar Rice Burroughs really well and you read John Carter of Mars, which you think is just pure escapist pulp, but if you knew him well, you go, oh yeah, that's Edgar, all right. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. you just would see that all these things are just they're just coming out of our psyches, and we're tell we're telling the truths about who we are through the the psyches of those characters. So you have to find the balance. You don't want to distort the character. You don't want to change the character to suit your needs but you want to find as much authentic emotion and psychology from your own life and put that through those characters. I love it. It actually adds to the fact that you, what you said, Peter's the everyman. So everyone is pouring themselves and their emotions and, and, and every writer does that, like you said, for every character, but like Peter is so like relatable. Yeah. And I've have heard you talk about Craven's last hunt that way. And it feels, you can feel the emotion from that story. Like there it's there. And you feel that even as yourself expressing yourself through the art and everything, it's just it's all there and it's a musician before you know writers and, and they put their lyrics and even though you like you said like they don't say their songs about them but there's the characters and their songs are you know somewhere in their you know same kind of thing what you're saying i, I think it's yeah. beautiful i love it when you know the best stories are, are those are i think so yeah when you look at any writer and you'll see recurring themes through all their work yeah. and and when you start out you're not even thinking about it really and then you look back and you go wow, these same themes keep recurring because these are the obsessions that we all have in our lives. You know what I mean? These are the things that drive us, that fascinate us, uh, the, the demons that gnaw at us, you know? And so, you know, writing is, is therapy, first and foremost for me, you know? Um, and, and, I, I, and, and, you know, that I get to do that, that I get to sit down and, and filter all this stuff through my imagination. I mean, I feel incredibly blessed that I've been able to do that all these years and make a living at it. You know, I, I, years ago, I, I did it with my daughter's class and my son's class in school. I go, when they were like in elementary school, I think, to talk to them about writing. I remember talking to my, my son's class. He must have been in like the fifth grade or sixth grade. 
and saying, yeah, well, you know, a lot of what I do is I lay on the floor of my office and I stare into space. <laughs> and and, I, and, I, and I, wait, I wait for these visions to come, you know, and you could see these little kids light, eyes light up. I want to do that for a living, you know? I want to stare into space for a living. Well, you know, you also have to sit down and write the story, but... Um, you get there eventually. You just have right. to kind of get in Staring into space is like a really, really important part. It's the most important part of the process because that's when the door between your own unconscious and that what I imagine is this huge dimension of story out there, you know, it opens up and then the door between your unconscious and your conscious opens up and this stuff just comes flooding through. And that's that's the pure creativity and the pure imagination. And for me, that's the best part of writing. So, uh, I wanted to ask a follow-up question. You mentioned Craven's Last Hunt, and one of my best friends uh, absolutely loves the follow-up story you did called Soul, it's called Soul of the Hunter. Mm -hmm. um, why doesn't it get as much love as maybe Craven's Last Hunt does? Because well, I mean, you know, it also it was it was a forty-eight page one-shot. So Craven was like this big six-part six part epic. It was all collected together. They finally just did, I think, a year or two ago, the most recent Craven collection where they collected not just Craven's Last Hunt, but a bunch of ancillary stories, you know? So they had, they finally had, I think, I'm pretty sure Soul of the Hunter was in there for the first time. Um, I would love to see the next edition be so all six issues of Craven's Last Hunt and Soul of the Hunter. Yeah. And actually, Child Within with that too, because mm. there's a through line through all those stories. Um, I've been waiting yeah, for so, Omnibus for you and Bishema. Oh, man. Oh. You've been, been waiting? Omnibus yeah. <laughs> I say this in every, every Spider-Man interview, people ask me this and I like, I don't know why it hasn't been collected. It's, it's, I think it's some of the best work I've ever done in absolutely. comics, you know, mm -hmm. and Sal at his absolute peak. And mm -hmm. why is this stuff not collected? I don't understand. I, I, I'm absolutely baffled. I, Especially I'm, because Spen uh, Nick Spencer's run recently tapped into a lot of. Yeah, um, they were um, reprinting um, pages from. Yeah, they yes, yes, exactly. I, I, I joked in, when we were reviewing the title um, that like they just took pages, like they didn't even like redraw. They just used they just used your and Sal's right, pages, which you know, was very very flattering, you know. Uh, uh, but okay, so have that reprinting more than that page. There have yeah. been isolated <laughs> isolated stories from that run that have been reprinted. You know, they did the Vulture stories. And I think that maybe the death of Harry has been reprinted, you know, but that whole run, you know, needs to be, but the child within never been reprinted. I've got foreign editions sitting on a shelf over there in Italy and other countries. That's baffling. I don't know why it hasn't happened here. I was like, I got to fly to Italy to get a omnibus, uh, right. to get a hardcover of this stuff. Come on, put it back in the States. Right. Yeah, well, apparently, apparently in Italy they're reprinting all my Spider-Man stories. All they're like, I have like a regular As they book should. coming out, you know, re reprinting them all month after month, which is amazing. So I I do know that they are doing like a um, starting the spectacular Spider-Man omnibuses. So I'm hoping that I don't know. Yeah, but we're talking almost 20 years after that book started that these books <laughs> came out. You know, and probably more than 20 years. Yeah, um, I noticed that they were soliciting the first volume, which I think is like the 40 first 45 or so issues. So 42, hopefully, 42, I think, and then the annual, I think. Yeah, so hopefully uh, they'll just keep continuing. So people need to buy those. Uh, but they just need to do like what they did with Roger Stern and just do the J.M. DiMatteis on the bus and just all your stuff. Okay, <laughs> that's, 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 I'm that's, glad we're, we're settled, so it's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to we'll have to contact Marvel and be like, hey, you know, yeah. gently. Um, I've, I've actually got a bit of a oh, sorry. Go ahead, Neil. 
So I've got actually kind of a bit more of a technical question. Okay. So I, I'm not sure about the exact time frame, but Justice League International and Craven's Last Hunt came out around the same time, if I if I recall correctly, 1987. Yeah. Um. So when it comes to writing those two fairly tonally distinct series, like you know, Craven's Last Hunt is fairly existential. Fairly and, distinct. Well, yeah, yeah. Extremely but, distinct. Uh, but and Justice League International coming out of uh, Crisis was very humorous and lighthearted. Right. So. What methods did you use to kind of transition between those two series while you're developing them? Like, was how did you separate those two in your mindscape going on about writer psyche? It's just psychosis, you know. No, no, but seriously, you know, I, <laughs> I looked back a while ago and I realized, and I hadn't realized it that because you know, because I hadn't thought about it for years, that I there was a point where they overlapped. I was writing both those both those things at the same time, you know. But as a writer, you know, you have to be able, you know, you're never writing just one thing. You know, uh, as a freelancer, you're always juggling projects. You have to to survive, and you just learn to shift gears. So, and you know, when you're writing something like Craven's Last Hunt, it's a delight and a relief to be able to jump over, and be working with Giffen on on Justice League and be able to express that side of my personality and that side of my psyche and emotions. You know, through that that lighter tone. But you know what they both have in common, though. I think there's a despite the lighter tone of Justice League, those characters are very real to me. You know, they're 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 in a way they're in a way they're kind of like Peter because they feel very very real to me and the humor in fact makes them more real. The banter, uh, I it, I, I, I've always said, it's just like you know when I was a teenager and young adult hanging out with my friends in Brooklyn on a Saturday night. That was Justice League right there. You know, uh, mm -hmm. and 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 the, the the humor used to cope with these dramatic situations to me makes it in in many ways more real than the breast-beating, ultra-serious uh, characters that I also clearly write and love, you know? Yeah, this was a... I, I love the story, you know? And this, you know, I this was... I, I, I'm not a big DC guy. I grew up on, on stuff, but I read this years ago, and I love it. And I love guys and, and Batman's relationship, like... The dynamics you have in this book is so good. So I just want to make sure you know, I love love the story. Thank Super you. Good. Thank you. It's, really, it's a funny thing, too, because both Craven's Last Hunt and the Justice League stuff, when I go to a convention, I always say about a third of what I sign is Craven, a third is Justice League, and the third is everything else from 40 years of writing, you know? Wow. Um, it's interesting. Those those two books have had those two series have had lives of their own, you know, and they just keep and people keep discovering them and rediscovering them and new people people walk up and go, oh, I just read this last week. Really? That's amazing. You know, that's what you hope for. That a story will live on like that. I think it speaks to the timeless nature of those of and the timeless nature of those stories that people are still discovering them and still taking something away from them even decades after their initial publication. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, you know, if I had been reading when I was 12 years old, something from 40 years before that, there, there, there were no comic books as we knew them 40 years before that, you know, so that that they that they can still be um, well, Justice League, I guess, Crave was 30 something years, but still that though they, they still feel relatively modern. They don't feel dated. It's it's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yeah. So the last time you wrote Ben Riley specifically was when you were developing the Redemption uh, series. So what was it like to return to Ben after almost 30 years? Well, you know, I actually did write a few short Ben stories. So there, you know, there was in the early, maybe early mid 2000s, they were, they kept bringing out different Spider-Man anthology books. I for Spider-Man family. There were, I think there was a couple, couple of others. 
and I did, I think I did two different Ben stories then, but they, so that got my feet wet a little bit, but even that was probably 10 years ago. And this mm-hmm. is the first deep dive I've done since then, since whatever that is, what, the late 90s, I guess? Yeah, um, uh, I guess, yeah. But it's it's kind of like what we were talking about before, about these being real people. You know, if you haven't seen a friend in 10 years and and it was a good friend and you and you reconnect and you just sit down and you start talking and you pick up like no time has passed. Wow. It's kind of been, it's the same thing with these characters when you really connect with them. I mean, last year at DC, I did a, a just a, a series based on Justice League Unlimited, which is, a you know, t- t- I wrote uh, multiple episodes for the TV show. I hadn't written those characters in 15 years. Um but suddenly, oh, it's Martian Manhunter. I know him. Oh, it's my old friend. It's the same thing with Ben. You know, it's like, oh, it's Ben. I know Ben. Right. So it really was fairly seamless. I wasn't, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't self-conscious about it. I wasn't worried about it. Once I got a hook on what the story was, um, off we go, because I know what's going on in that man's head. And it's a perfect time for him, too, because it's just at this moment when Peter and MJ have left and gone to Portland. So he has just started to be Spider-Man again. So he's, you know, he's been Scarlet Spider, but that's one thing. But now for the first time in whatever it is, more than five years, he's being Spider-Man again. But the other the, the other thing that's really crucial is he's back in New York, but he can't be Peter Parker again. Because there's a guy out there named Peter Parker who's everyone knows who's got a wife and a kid on the way. And so who is he? And how does he build a life? Because he can't, even though he's back in New York, even though he's back to being Spider-Man, he has no life. He's living in a ratty apartment in the East Village, you know, and uh, he's, you know, you think about this, this, you know, this really brilliant guy and he's working in a coffee shop, you know, he's serving coffee and washing dishes in the back. Um, And he has no friends and he doesn't know. And psychologically on some level, after five years thinking you're this sort of inhuman freak underneath everything, there's a part of him that doesn't even think that he deserves friendship and life. And that's part of the journey that we go through in this book is Ben coming back to his full humanity. You know, the book is called, uh, the story is called The Humanity Agenda. And that applies to Ben. And it also applies to our main antagonist, who we meet at the end of issue three. I, I had talked about that in our review of the second issue. So I actually wanted to follow up. You mentioned like, you know, it was like returning to an old friend with Ben Riley. Yeah. Um, to follow up on that, what, there's been a bunch of Ben Riley stories that have come out in the last four or five years, you know, Peter David's Scarlet Spider run clone conspiracy and the ongoing beyond stuff. Um, did you have to do any research to get back into the character? And we'll talk about like, you know, the Kafka stuff, uh, paralleling and beyond, but was it, was it like nothing had really changed that much going in or did you kind of have to go over the more recent stuff? I, I didn't have to do the recent stuff because the recent stuff is beyond Ha ha ha! Where where this story is <laughs> taking <we> place, <laughs> you know. So I'm just all I just had to do was go back. You know, I didn't have to know anything else because I just had to go back to that point in time that I knew very very well. So there was really no research involved beyond you know maybe refamiliarizing myself with some of the old stuff. It's a weird thing when you have to sort of Wikipedia your own stories. You know? <laughs> and, and, the, and, the, and the reason I wanted to make that distinction was because you mentioned writing Justice League Infinity, and you know those characters haven't been touched since Justice League right. ended. Right. But you know Ben, ben Riley's been brought back, and he's had all this stuff happen to him. So I was wondering like how much. Right. If I was writing a contemporary Ben story, then there'd be a, a hell of a lot of research I'd have to do. 
you know, I always say it's one of the great things about this job, you know, it's like I'm doing research and I'm like reading comics and watching cartoons and it's like, I'm working, don't disturb me. You know? <laughs> and, and, I, and I assume that's the benefit on your end of writing it's essentially an untold tale is that you kind of get to pick up right where you left off. Yeah, exactly, else exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's right in that perfect pocket. Yeah, how I kind of looked at it was that you were, this is what if you never left because you, know, you left towards the end of maximum clonage and stuff like that and all of the yeah but, this clone saga went on for about 50 years after that yeah <laughs> seriously glacial pace you're like oh my god it's still you walk into the office oh my god it's still going what are you yeah. doing <laughs> life of riley essay series really illuminated you know all the chaos that was going on behind the scenes yeah. and I, you know, so I, 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 to me, it's a treat for you to get to come back and and because you you jumped back on literally um, on spectacular with Luke Ross, right, right when that end all ended, yeah, yeah. So, so I, I always, so, it, it was it the all the chaos that caused you to leave the first time? Because I know you were, had such an affinity for the character that it was kind of it's kind of surprising when you're going back and reading, and you're like, oh. This is his last issue for a while. You know, I think now again, it's a long time ago. My memory mm -hmm. is that I got tired of writing chapter two in a four-part story every month. You know, uh, I it, let me tell you, th those for the most part were great days. We had a great group of writers, especially once we started doing all the interconnected clone saga stuff. We used to go up to the office like every two weeks or so have a writer's meeting, lock ourselves away for the afternoon, eat Chinese food or pizza and scream at each other and have fun all day, you know? Uh, you know, Danny Fingeroth was running the books uh, for most of that period of time. Um, and it was me and Tom DeFalco and Howard Mackey and first Terry Cavanaugh and later, um, come on, Todd DeZago, the great, great oh, yeah. Todd DeZago. How could I forget Todd? Um, and it, we just, we all liked each other. We all respected each other. We had so much fun putting those stories together. But going home to write a chapter of some ongoing thing, after a certain point in time, it just became burdensome to me. It wasn't as much fun as I wanted it to be, you know? And uh, so like doing something like the Lost Years miniseries, that stood on its own, you know? Um, but otherwise, everything else tied into everything else constantly. And one of the problems that came up, especially for me, because I can be a very spontaneous writer. So I may say, here's the story for the next issue. And then I sit down to write it. And while I'm writing, something happens. The character leaps up off the page and does something different. And I remember one specific thing where we were working working on, I think it was a, 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 the, the female Dr. Octopus introducing her. And I get to the end and she reveals that she's Seward Trainer's daughter. Well, this was not in any of our discussions, you know. <laughs> but she told me, you know, I just found, oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's the best part of writing is when the character tells you something you didn't know, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom DeFalco had already plotted the next chapter. Oh, no. So it's like, you know, he had to go back and fix things. And luckily, Tom is one of the nicest humans on the planet Earth. And he wasn't mad at me and come to my house and beat me up. Um, but, you know, so that kind of spontaneity gets squashed a little bit when you're in the middle writing your chapter. I think Tom used to joke that all of his chapters ended with an explosion. You know? <laughs> Something blew up. And then in the, the next issue, we'd figure out what happened and who survived the explosion. You know, he's not. Even, yeah, right, right. So, you know, but 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 working with those guys uh, was we, we we had so much fun. It's one of my favorite times in my entire career was working with those guys, putting those stories together. It was like being in a writer's room for a TV show. 
you know? Um, and, you know, what they came up years later, came up with years later in the Spider books, where there was a period where they would all work out the stories together, but one person would write each arc. And I think that's a better way to do it, because then you have one consistent voice and one person gets to tell a complete tale. Um, right. And I think, you know, had we been doing something like that, I probably would have stayed longer, but we never thought of it. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Right. Well, and, and you know, that uh, Superman was kind of doing the same thing, you know, right, right before you guys. Right. And, Right, and, and so it, it just was that was the the style, I guess, at the time. Yeah, yeah, and you know, then then you everybody has a slightly different voice, and maybe you know you're talking about Peter being consistent, but every writer has a different voice, and and so you know Howard's stories didn't read like Tom's and didn't read like Terry's or Todd's or mine. Everybody was different, which was great when you're all writing individual books, but sometimes when you're all writing the same story, those voices can fight against each other a little bit too. So to kind of dovetail on that, did it, did that, you had essentially the same players whenever the Clone Saga ended and before, you know, they came in and did that reboot? Well, I think it had a chance. I know Dan Jurgens was on the books then, right? Well, so I, I think it was. Yeah. Or maybe, or I guess Tom and Howard were still on it, right? And, yeah. And Dan Jurgens and maybe, I don't know if Todd was still there either. Yeah. Todd took over. Um, he took over. Uh, so Jurgens came in. Todd was writing, I think, uh, Sensational and Spectacular, mm-hmm. full and double duty. And then uh, they brought in Dan for the new Sensational title. And um, uh, he was on for about six months, and then he left. And um, and I, I think he was – and then Todd was pulling double duty on those two titles. Okay, so Todd was there till the end then. Okay. Yes, okay. yes, yeah. Todd was there till the end. Yeah, I, I knew that he was kind of – from what I read, he was kind of um, – he was a he was very young in his writing career, and so I think, if I'm remembering correctly, Tom and him were very. Tom was kind of his mentor, from what I understood. Well, a bunch of us really were. were when, I remember being exposed to, to Todd's work early on, and I forgot how through through a friend maybe. So he was one of those guys. He came along, and he was brand new, but he was really good right out of the gate. So we all kind of lobbied. We we all lobbied to get him on on a Spider-Man book after Terry left. Because he was he was really really good. Plus Todd, again, I'm going to keep saying this about all these guys. Really nice guy, and so uh, he was a great addition to the group personality wise as well. And and he just he was firing on all thrusters right out of the gate. He was great. Yeah, I I remember that era after the Clone Saga too. When when you, what was your reaction to when they brought back Norman? You know, for obvious reasons, I prefer the Harry Osborn Green Goblin. I think he's a lot more interesting because mm-hmm. he's not just the villain. He's the hero's best friend, and they love each other while they hate each other, while they're battling each other. At their core, these two guys love each other and care about each other deeply and desperately. That makes for great stories. That makes for great, you know, it's like talk about psychological pulling and tussling, and the, the whole story's right there. Um, and Norman's interesting. It was fun to write Norman. And when I was a kid, you know, my favorite Spider-Man story probably is still the first, that first, those first two Romita issues where, where we first find out that the Green Goblin is, is Norman Osborn. That's really where I came on to Spider-Man as a reader. And those stories are still, are still like way up there in my pantheon of great Spider-Man stories. And, um, so I, I, I love the Norman Osborn Goblin, but I just, you know, how you experience things as a writer is very different than the way you experience them as a reader. You connect with different things and different characters. 
you know, as a reader, I probably would have never said, oh, Blue Beetle, one of my favorite characters of all time. But then you start to write Blue Beetle, it's like, I love this guy. You know, so um, so I, I prefer the Harry, the Harry version of, of the Goblin. But, you, you know, how long can you do that, really? You know, but it's comics, so I guess you can do it forever because you just yeah, put it away for a while and then you bring it back like we do with everything else. We got this one brand going 60 years. How long yeah, can it yeah. entropy kicks in? Exactly. Well, you know, and, it is, and, it's, and it's like every generation comes along and to in some way retell the same story. But the trick is you hope that they retell it with a unique voice and a unique exactly. perspective, you know? Mm. You know, that's a criticism that a lot of people try to put on, like, I think, you know, mainstream comic books and, co and these things. And, and I, people say, well, it's just the same stories retold. I'm like, yeah, but that's like every story known to man, every film, right. like Star yeah. Wars is this the hero's journey. You know, it's like, but again, you retell it in a fresh way, like you said, to a different generation. So. Yeah, and you know, look at ma any mainstream novel. Okay, oh, here's a here's a novel about a, a a dysfunctional family over three generations. Well, there's been a thousand of those written. Yeah, every, you know, everybody's life experience is different, so everybody brings a different filter to those stories. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I do have a question about the modern books. Did the Beyond okay. Board have any input towards this story? Because you have they both have Ashley Kafka. I know, which is a, a kind of a character that you have a fondness for as well uh, that that sal and i co-created yeah mm -hmm. yep. yeah so no it just it, we were lucky we just lucked out because i wanted to use kafka in the story and mm -hmm. when i when i brought up uh kafka my editor said oh that's great works perfectly because she's she's in the stories that are going on now so they'll balance each other and 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 this ben riley story really establishes uh clearly for the first time the connection between ben and kafka so, this is i believe their first interaction ever yeah right? yeah mm-hmm yeah, because when I because when I read ASM seventy five, the Webb's Gleason issue that that introduces the Beyond Corporation as the main overarching uh, arc, they they specifically build Ben Riley Spider Man with like Kafka getting Ben's file and saying I'll take the job, and then it has like teaser pages of your book and Ben talking to Kafka, and so I was oh, like, really? oh, okay. I, I was wondering if like I was wondering if one of one of editorials like coming in and saying like Hey, we've got Kafka here. Uh, you you want to use her over in your book, but I I guess you kind of answered that question. Yeah, they might have asked me eventually, but I beat them to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she is uh, one of my favorite characters, and I was really delighted to bring her back. And uh, very serendipitous, then, huh? That's yeah, crazy. it really was. Yeah, That's so awesome. to follow up with that, was at, was was she named after like somebody you knew? I I, I read somewhere yes. or heard somewhere. The writer. Uh, well, the the the, the um, I had a I had a, a good friend. Uh, named Freda Kafka, not oh. Ashley Kafka, as the character is. Ashley came from another friend of mine. I always like to take my friends' names and sneak them into comic books, you know. Oh, nice. So, but I had a friend named Freda Kafka who was a therapist, a hypnotherapist, oh. and uh, was always sort of, you know, helped me to understand that side of things, uh, the, the the therapeutic side of things. So it was a little a little thank you and tribute to her. Huh. But you know, you know, uh, it, it, it was not literally her any more than it was literally uh, my friend Ashley, who I gave the first name to. You know, you, 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 you. Once a character hits the page, they become. I don't care who you base it on, or who inspires you, or if it's based on a historical figure or whatever it is. Once that character hits the page, they become something. They become oh. their own thing. Yeah. You know, they could take on a life of their own. Um, but yeah, but that's where where the name Kafka came from, and what a better what better name, you know what I mean, than Kafka for for a therapist who works with supervillains. You know? and, and and now it's you know well I don't want to spoil it, but yeah, what what's happening now? Her, her name really fits, I would say. So yeah, uh, I, I have a 
question that I've asked several writers, and it, it, you've kind of somewhat answered this, but maybe you can expand upon it. Does the story, it, does the characters drive the story or the plot drive the story? Characters for, drive me, the- it's, for me, it's always the characters. Okay. You know, once in a while, an idea will pop up and it's like, what a great concept. You know, what a great idea, what a great engine for a story. But even then, what's happening for the characters there? I always, I, I, you know, 99% of the time I have to write from the inside out. So, like I said, even if it's like, what a cool plot, uh, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, a st- if a story just has a cool plot, who cares? Right. You know, you I can, you know, well, it doesn't mean anything to me. I've never been someone who like certain people can read like a certain kind of detective novel where it's really the characters are just sort of cardboard, but it's the mystery and the little puzzle pieces that pull you through. For me, it's always been about connecting to the characters, mm. always. So it has to come from here out and from here out, you know? You know, to follow up on that too, what Zach was asking, because um, if I remember, I misheard this, and I'll bear with me here. I apologize if I'm wrong. But Craven's last time I heard was originally supposed to be a Batman pitch. Mm-hmm. And then I remember hearing Going Sane by the, that you wrote, which by the way, DC needs to put that in print again, because I want to buy that in trade. And it's like a hundred bucks. I'm like, I'm not paying that guys. Just give me the free print for God's sakes. But that was supposed to be um, a different story too. So you talked about how, you know, it's interesting because those feel very plot driven, but like you said, like I, but I know how you write because you're my favorite writers. You definitely write them from emotional context. So it's right. interesting how, like how Craven's last hunt was a Batman story. And then going insane was, wasn't a Batman story originally and how they flip flopped or whatever. I don't think going insane was originally a Spider-Man story. It was someone else, I believe. No, going, go my, one of my, before I did Craven's last hunt, one of my pitches was, was the bones of going insane in that the Joker would kill Batman, bury him alive. Uh, but the premise there was that now that the Joker has completed his life's work, his mind snaps. Well, he's right. crazy. So when his mind snaps, he goes sane and goes off and lives this this completely different life. And then the story takes off from there. But the initial premise was the same. And for a variety of reasons, those, that story it was two different versions of that with Batman, one with the Joker, one with Hugo Strange. It didn't, it didn't take off. And then uh, I kept playing with that. I, there's something about the hero coming back from the grave that kept playing in my head. Okay. Okay. But it's exactly what I'm talking about. That's really great. So a hero comes back from the grave. But what does that mean? Yeah. What is the story about? What is the emotion? What is the psychological journey? And and so, you know, 10 years later, I finally got to do the Batman story. And if you read them together, you'll see certain similar things going on. But they're very different stories because they're very different characters. Bruce Wayne's journey in that story is very different. The Joker's journey is certainly very different than Craven's journey. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, because like you meant you mentioned like there's something triumphant about a hero like rising out of the grave. That that page that Zach drew of Peter like oh. digging himself out of that grave, mm-hmm. it's iconic for a reason. And I think and I think that giving that whole splash page to it was a master stroke of uh sequential storytelling. Right. Well it was also because in the pages before that there was all this intense inner stuff going on with Peter. The whole first part of that story is in his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very surreal. It's very intense. It's very focused, and then you just open up to this incredible image. Um, yeah, it's it's become it's that that cover is just one of the great covers of all oh, time. You but know? it's yeah, for sure, for sure. And it's also interesting because that came out right when he got married. So there's like, and again, going back to the whole you know Spider-Man lifting up the rocks from you know the Dicko era. That is again, that's a retelling, and again, it's a very emotional, deep you know. 
a different story, but it's in the essence, it's it's Spider-Man not giving up. It's rising like right. from everything. And it's that's the heart of the story. Exactly. That's the heart of that story. And the exactly. heart of, I mean, not the heart of story, it's the heart of the character. Exactly. And, and there was a similar moment in ASM 90. I, I view it sort of like as a not necessarily a subversion of like the Peter lifting heavy objects trope, but Peter uplifting himself. Yeah. Not necessarily he not necessarily because he is a burden, but because he needs to give himself that pep talk to get going. And I think that that, that grave rising fits into that kind of uh, niche of, you know, telling telling the story, but uniquely that we've, yeah. that you mentioned earlier. He's the guy that no matter how many times you knock him down, no matter how many bones you break, no matter how much you wound him physically or psychologically or whatever, he'll go lick his wounds, but he's going to get up again. He's got to get up again. And even if he fails, it doesn't matter. He has to get up because he wants to do the right thing. And that's the essence of Peter is he's a guy who, no matter how much he screws up and what makes him relatable is that he screws up spectacularly along the way, but he will always get back up and try to make it right and do the right thing. So we mentioned Mike, Mike Zach. Uh, you've worked with some great artists over the years. Um, Sabi Sema, obviously, uh, Mark Bagley, Luke Ross. As a writer, do you try to tailor your story to their strengths or do you have like a feeling out period with the artist or is you it know, different? Yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. I've been asked that question before. And, it, you know, when I'm writing the story, at least initially, when I'm first starting to work with someone, I'm in the story. I'm letting the story lead me, you know. Um, so I'm not really, oh, I'm going to tailor this because I know Mike, I'm making this up. You know, Mike likes to draw pink Cadillacs, so I'm going to put a pink Cadillac in the story or anything like that. <laughs> I'm just going to let the story lead me on. But what happens is when you've been working with someone for a while and you get their rhythm. And now Mike and I had worked together for two years on Captain America. So we knew each other. We had a rhythm. So I know Mike. So I'm writing a story and I can see Mike's work in my head as I'm writing it because I know mm -hmm. it. You know, working with Sal after a while, it's like you sit down to write the story. I'm envisioning how it's going to be translated into this amazing Sal Buscema artwork. Mm -hmm. um, so... It's in the, it, you know, in general, no, I'm not tailoring it so much as what happens as you work together, there becomes a kind of a mind mill between writer and artist. You know, Giffen and I, it's like by the time, you know, after whatever it is, 35 years of working together on so many different projects, you know, you will not find two more different people than me and Keith. And yet we have this mind mill. It's like, mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I, 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 I see, like, I work with him and I see stories in terms of Keith. I just, you know, we, I, I can write like him. He can write like me. Either one of us could sit down and write a, a Giffen Dimitteis story because we've, we've, mel we've melded and merged, you know. Um, it just happens when you have a great collaboration. That's one thing I love about, uh, I think, like, you know, again, amateur comic writer and all that crap. Um, but, like, I used to be a musician. I love, what I love discovering my my early, early access in, in a comics recently is how it reminds me of music and the collaboration. I love the collaboration yes. of comics and what everything, yes. and like, what you're saying, the, the mind meld. Because, again, when you're, when, you're, when you're in a band, and you know you play music, too. I know you've, you, you've talked do. about yeah. that. Yeah. So we can understand that, that aspect of collaborating and when you're, you're playing with someone and just you know like you said two different people could all of a sudden just they creatively just are in sync it's magical when you can yeah, do that yeah. right and and not, not yeah and the tension too you look at lee and kirby you know there was like there was a place in the middle where they met but there was a lot of tension there too the mccarthy two, 
to right Lennon McCartney. It's yeah. tension and the tension, the different points of view that are fighting mm-hmm. with each other, they actually breathe. creates something yes. a third thing that what that neither one could do individually. Exactly. Yeah. A- absolutely. And and really quick to follow up with Sal Buscemi what he's talking about. There's a, there's a page I was looking for the page I could not find it for the life of me, but it was right after the Child Within I believe I for, I don't know when it was, but I remember rereading it a couple of years ago and it blew me away, sir. Like because it, it you there was no dialogue, it was strictly just. Spider-Man looking for Harry and he punches open like the this basement door looking for him and it's a hideout and he just and it's nine panel grid and again like how you and Sal are so in tune because I it just it was just Peter looking for you know whatever he opens up a cabinet and it's just the the green goblin costume right, hanging up yeah. the spider webs yeah. and the spider I was like god damn that is that is sequential art at its finest because and it felt it just felt perfect to me because as a again as a musician as a creative person the tendency for some people would be like oh i gotta put some you know inner you know dialogue here like whereas you were tasteful I'm like no i don't have to put this like well that's the beauty of what they call uh marvel style where the right. plot is done mm-hmm. first you know and people hear marvel style and they think it's like what it was in the 60s when stan would say to jack you know let's bring back dr doom and kirby would go home and draw you know 20 pages <laughs> of the story and then stan would dialogue it from there you know you know the, the plots that i wrote for sal for instance were really really top tight page by page panel by panel you know angle by mm-hmm. angle but you give that even there you give that plot to six different artists you're gonna get six, six different it, stories absolutely back. so the, the beauty of of doing the plot first is then you get you get the art back and you can look at that page and maybe on those that sequence in my head when I was writing the plot, I thought there'd be a lot of narrative on that page. Because I'm laying, you know, as I'm writing the plot, I'm having little little parentheticals with what, what's going on emotionally, what's going on psychologically, what's he thinking here, what's he doing here? And then the art comes in and you go, that says everything I wanted to say. It's beautiful. So I'm just going to shut up for these couple of pages. And I've said this before, <laughs> but it happened with Spectacular Spider-Man 200 when Harry dies. The last, I think, three pages of that story. I thought... I am going to write the hell out of this and really tug everybody's heartstrings and, and, you know, get the violins going. And, and I, yeah, I get to the end with Sal's artwork there. And I, I started to write and I went, no, everything I asked for in my plot is here in the pictures. I'm going to shut up and let the pictures finish the story. I kind, wow. of to, I kind of wanted to ask something similar to that. Like, you know, is there, has there ever been a time and I guess you kind of answered it with the Sal Harry death scene but has there ever been a, a bit where, because you mentioned like synergy between writer and artist, has there ever been a time where like one of your artists kind of just pushed back on you and just delivered something completely different from what you originally intended and it turned out arguably better than what you had originally thought of? Oh, if it turned out better. That's interesting. Well, you know, that's what my whole relationship with Keith is kind of like. We're, co- <laughs> we're co-writers, you know. Uh, but, you know, Keith is a co-writer, but he also, he, he, he draws his plots, you know. Right. Um, so, you know, even even when we're co-plotting a story together, Keith will just go off and then do whatever the hell he wants. That's our permission with each other. And then when I get to dialogue the story, I get to do whatever the hell I want. And it might entail changing huge elements of the story through the dialogue, which you can, which is what people, you know, so, so Keith, I'll get. Oh, there's another point I want to make. Let me get back to me and Keith. So that's part of that. The, the the thing that makes our relationship great is that we both respect each other so much that each one of us can basically say the hell with you and do whatever we want. Because you know? <laughs> um, we, you know, uh, oh Keith, you know, I changed those five things and I added a whole bunch of stuff in the script, and then he would just build on that, and then you know, we talk. What are you going to do next, Keith? I want to do this. And then, oh, that sounds great. And then the plot comes in as something completely different, you know. But you can't do that with everybody. 
you know, Keith and I have trust and respect and we had it really, we didn't know each other when we started working together really, but we had it. There's, there's the personal relationship and there's the creative relationship. And it's a funny thing. They're two different things sometimes. Yeah, it's true. And so Keith and I had this intuitive trust and respect right from the get go. Sal, I got to know him over the course of working with him on, on spectacular for those years, but from the first page, first panel, there was this magical chemical reaction that happened. It just happened. You cannot make it happen. Mm -hmm. It just either it happens or it doesn't. I've said this before, but I've worked on stories where I think I've written a really good script. I think the artist has done an excellent job and you put the two together and it just dies. I don't know why. It's the same as it is in human relationships. Why is there chemistry between certain people and not with others? So and, it's, you know, it's the same thing with creative people. And, and Paul was supposed to ask this question, but I kind of want to cap yeah, it. Go for it, man. David Baldian, uh, the artist on Ben Riley, he, he did an incredible Twitter thread uh, discussing um, like his, his intentions with every, with a good chunk of the pages of at least the preview of, of the, oh, really? the I didn't see that. Yeah. Um, if you'd like, I can probably email it to you after. Okay, sure. But he did a very in-depth analysis of how he structured each page. And I think that going, building off of, off of like your relationship with GIF and like how Baldian discusses his relationship to your script and how he takes from that and builds upon it as an artist, I found that thread incredibly enlightening. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'd like to see that. You know, David, I didn't know anything about him before this book came along. I'd never seen his work. And, and um, Danny, our editor, sent me some of his stuff. And I thought it looked good. But as good as the samples that I saw looked, I mean, he is every single issue that we've done has been better than the one before. That's and cool. the same thing. I'm writing plots that are page by page, panel by panel, camera angle. But I also, I, I was always say to the artist, look, I write it this way because it helps me see the story. Mm -hmm. If you want to break out of that, Feel free to break out of it as long as you're true to the story. But David, you know, David has a great silk because he's following exactly what I'm asking for, and yet he's making it his own at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's what I meant before when I said you can give a very tight plot or a script, a full script to six different artists, you're going to get six different stories back. So, do, so it sounds like you plot. So you go panel by panel, page by page, but you don't yeah. put the dialogue in. You wait to do that after. I the put part. in a lot of suggested dialogue. I have characters okay. talking to each other. I have parentheticals about their inner journey. All that stuff is in there. Okay. So, because, you know, if you don't have some sort of dialogue in there, then the artist has no idea what, you know, how are these characters okay. acting on the page. But so it's a rough, the great thing about, dialogue. then when I get to the script part, though, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like what Keith and I do, except I'm doing it by myself. I mm. get to collaborate with myself. So if I go, you know what? I want to change that thing that I had in the plot. Or there's right. no room to get this information in over here. I can put it in over here. And the mm -hmm. same thing, uh, you know, I was going to say a lot about what's going on in Ben's head over here, but I think what David did is so fantastic. We just had a sequence. I just finished dialoguing the fifth issue. And there was this whole sequence of like two or three pages. And I went, and I was working from David's layouts and his layouts are, his layouts are so good that I don't even have to wait for the finished art because it, it's all there and it flows That's beautifully. Awesome. And I said, you know, David, if you just change this one panel, I can do like two pages with no dialogue on it because it's just everything I asked for is hit perfectly and he changed the panel and you know so it, it it gives me a chance to 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 collaborate with myself in essence and change things and tweak things add things remove things it puts a second step and once i've locked a full when i'm working full script and i've worked in full script plenty and this it has its own joys because uh, you you have complete control of the materials there you know beginning to end but 
but that's locked and it's locked and off it goes. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, then you'll, you'll, you know, at the end, you'll get it back and you'll see, oh, I might need to add a balloon here or whatever to clarify this. But basically it's locked. Working plot first, you have that fun of reacting to mm-hmm. the artwork. Gotcha. And then sometimes you have these artists who are just will just be adding things that you never expected. Keith is bit, was big at that. You know, we, when I worked with him, we worked on a Dr. Fate miniseries before we did um, Justice League. And there would be something, suddenly there'd be something on the page. It was like, wasn't in the plot, but that's really cool. Okay, I can go with that, you know? That, that's, um, I, read, I read that mini. That mini was bonkers. Because then the, yeah. it was like the old Dr. Fate with the new Dr. Fate. Yeah, and like, oh, yeah. that was crazy. That yeah, was crazy. Yeah, did yeah. Keith do the yeah. art on that? Did he, did he, on, was on he the, the artist? Yeah, Keith did the art on the miniseries. And then, okay. I did a, then I did a two-year ongoing series with Sean McManus. Okay, okay, okay. That's right, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking, um, oh. speaking of the mini, uh, of this current miniseries, how has been the internal response I've seen a lot of external positive buzz and response, but how has it been, you know, how's the feedback been from Marvel? Have they been very... Well, from what I'm getting through my editor, very positive. He said they got they got more mail, actually, you know, whether it's email or regular mail on the first issue than I've gotten on almost anything recently. Whoa. So, you know, so they're happy. Um, and uh, I, I, I suspect there will be more, more stuff to follow after this, but I can't swear to it, but... I can tell you the first issue I got and uh, I was kind of a bit of a, at an emotional point in my life and um, it hit me it just it, 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 it elicited responses in me that I hadn't had in a long time. So I just want to thank you. Oh, oh for, you're very for, welcome. Thanks. Because there's sometimes I've been one of those you know flag carrying Clone Saga fans out there on the internet that has been champion championing the uh, the story and the era of which it comes from. I always specify it's an era, not just a story. Right. So it's got twists and turns in it. Um, and I know it's nothing like you guys in, originally intended on on doing whenever it was yeah. first proposed by Terry. <laughs> Uh, and you can kind of uh, elaborate on that if you like, but but I, I just you know it seems like uh, you and David have just been able to create magic with this miniseries. So we, we, I, we really we've really clicked. I really um, I, I have become a huge huge fan of his, and it's been just delightful collaborating with him. But the whole team has been great. I mean, Danny Chasm, our, our editor, is just. What a great guy! You know, it, it, you want you know you want to work with really talented people, but you want to work with nice people too. Yeah, you know, because sometimes you work with really talented people and you don't particularly like them. You know what I mean? Um, but um, but everybody working on this book is real silver. The 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 colorist. I mean, it's just been it's that, a great it's a great group, and we've just had fun with it. And you know, even if the thing tanked, we had a good time. It's, but happily, it's not tanking. So. Um, Cool. You know, the first and foremost, you want to take pleasure in the work for myself, and then I want to take pleasure in the collaboration with the other people that I'm working with. And what happens after that is out of my hands. You know, some things I've loved over the years have just gone, you know, and other things. Is, I mean, I love the Craven story. It's not my favorite Spider-Man story that I've ever done. It's not. That would be probably The Child Within and Spec 200. That's my favorite. Those are Craven is too, but yeah. not saying it's not a really great story. And I love I've worked with Zek anytime anywhere you know but the audience makes a different decision than the creator makes and the audience decided that craven's last hunt was this thing that suddenly became like the monolith from 2001 so what can i say (laughs) but thank you that's great you hope for that 
Joe Joe Benny drive out to the um, Arizona desert, like put put the cover on a vine like a vinyl cover, right. put the cover on a mon- on the monolith and like get right. all this out here and war paint like chanting around it. <laughs> we can do it. I we'll, think we'll Mike do it would appreciate you. that. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, well, there's some guy that did a whole sculpture. You must have seen that online. Yeah, it's like a life size sculpture of Spider Man coming up out of the grave. It's amazing. amazing. Oh yeah, I did see that. I did see that. I think I saw you retweet that actually. Yeah, um, yeah. Twitter. Um, first of all, thank you. We we were almost at the hour mark, and it it doesn't even seem like it's been that long. Um, yeah, we can do another ten or fifteen minutes if you have more questions. I'm happy to go. And if you're done, I'm, I'm, I have my Frogman question at some point, but okay. I'll, I'll wait. I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait for Zach. You got to ask about Frogman, Paul. I, I asked yeah, no, about. Please, I love Frogman. Ask me about Frogman. <laughs> okay. And, I, and this is no BS. I wish I could I've had my issues here somewhere. Um, I when I was a kid, I I grew up loving Spider Man, and I'll never forget. I was reading Spider Man, you know, religiously. I was in second grade, I think, when the Child Within all that stuff was going on. And I I can tell you that I related. To get a little bit deeper here, I can I related to Harry more than I'd like to admit at the time. Things are better now, but at the time, it was very surreal at times to read that. And be like, oh my god, like just, just weird. I, I related to Harry Moore in, in in a lot of different ways, and it was, it was telling me like, I, it was just interesting to see Spider Man in a different light. But so th- that was a really, really good thing for me to kind of see an art and myself in stories and things like that, at least from an emotional standpoint. It was also interesting following that when I'd get a really fun like story about this character I've never heard of. And I'm like, who is this Frogman character? And I immediately fell in love with Eugene. I don't know what it is about him. And I, I've been trying to you know, tell people, like, I'm trying to find my issue. I, I bought the first appearance of Eugene. Because I know, if those who don't know, uh, Eugene, the Frogman, is actually the son of an original villain from Daredevil, Leapfrog. And you turn him into Frogman. And, um, you know, Eugene. So my question is, what inspired Frogman? And, you know, because, you, again, you took an obscure character and then just turned it to Frogman. And then it, it's, it's interesting because like, I, he's what makes because he has a little bit of a following. And it, it's not like an ironic following. It's like like me. I legitimately love the character. I, I love Frogman. I I have Frogman stories in my head I would love to tell. Like, that, you know, well, Eugene, that was, Eugene is even more of an everyman than Peter because he's not the science genius. He's just a regular kid in every mm-hmm. way, you know. But where it came from was, you know, even as a kid reading reading Daredevil, I, with all due respect to, to two people that I really admire, Stan Lee and Gene Colan, Leapfrog is one of the dumbest villains ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I've created my share of dumb villains, so I, I don't escape that either, you know? Um, but I love the but, Walrus. Love the yeah, Walrus. Right. Well, the Walrus was intentionally dumb. You know, I, 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 I love them. I love them, though. There, there's, Atten- there's the, intentional there's dumbness the, is different. Well, there's the different. ironically bad ones, and then there's the ones that just come out. Right. I mean, this is a guy in a frog suit with giant leaping coils, and that's it. <laughs> boing, boing. And, you know, the, the truth is Daredevil probably could have taken him out in two panels, you know. Um, but, uh, right, so there's the first issue. So oh. I, when I was, I was writing that issue of uh, – Marvel team up, and that was right around the time when, when I think I really was getting my getting a really solid grip. I don't know if that was if that was Carrie's first issue, or if that was later in the run that first uh, Frogman story. But I remember looking back at some of the old Lee Ditko stories, and the, I love the way Ditko would plot things. He plotted things in a weird way, the way that Seinfeld episodes are plotted. There's all these different elements. If you if you go read those stories and look at an episode of Seinfeld, the Seinfeld episodes are actually beautifully plotted. You'll have two sure. or three different storylines. 
And then they all kind of intersect and collide at a certain point. And Ditko was great at that. And so I think I was inspired by trying to do a story like that, but I wanted to do something lighter also. And then I just, re- I, you know, I guess I remembered this goofy old villain and I thought, a guy like that, you never saw him again, really, I don't think, yeah, even after no. the initial appearance. So what happened to this guy? And so I came up with the idea of this guy who, who was just in desperate straits. He invented these goofy leaping coils and he really needed money. You know, his wife had died or his wife was dying at the time and he had a mm-hmm. kid. And, and so where is this guy years later? He's, and, and, you know, I kind of tapped into my own Italian heritage and, and, and created this nice Italian family. And Eugene, this nice Italian kid who just thinks, God, you know, you know, dad's still being followed around by the shadow of this of this quote villain that that he was, and I'm going to redeem this, and I'm going to steal his suit and be a great superhero, you know. So it's this really sweet father and son story, and it's also a chance just to be light and have some fun. So you know, I did, I, I used him in Marvel Team Up, I used him in Spectacular Spider-Man, I used too. him in the Defenders, mm-hmm. and then there was a, a Marvel fanfare. It was a Captain America story in Marvel fanfare, but I used Eugene in that one too. Um, How to get that? I don't know yeah, that one. It was a two-part story, and Kerry Gamble drew it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I, I was I was very, very pleased to see recently that Chris Cantwell was using Frog yes. Man in Iron Man. I was going to um, ask about that. I was going to ask if you'd seen, if you'd read Iron Man. And seen I, I haven't read it, but I know that he's used him. In fact, there was one story where he had Frogman, Gargoyle, Ben Riley, and Gargoyle. In yeah. My characters there. I was like, oh, this is great. You know? Which by, Chris, spoiler uh, alert, uh, Mr. David Diaz, um, uh, Frogman uh, kicks Korvac, if you, if, if you, if you can believe it. He actually like he actually really? fights. Yeah, he, he kicks Korvac. He kicks Korvac. Like he actually uh, fights like Korvac. That's great. <laughs> I, I, I say it, and I don't mean it as a joke. If someone's if they called me up tomorrow and said, "Do you want to write a, a Frogman ongoing series?" I would write it in a heartbeat. Oh, you know, it's 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 very much in the Spider-Man template. You know, in the sense of just a regular guy who suddenly gets to do this thing. You know, mm-hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I, I I I'm very attached to you. I was completely surprised and delighted when I saw both the, the, the Frogman and the White Rabbit figures, two characters of mine that I never expected to have action figures up sitting in my office. I, the Hasbro team love the comics and it, it always comes through when they're talking about the characters. And I remember them gushing uh, about the, about both White Rabbit and Frogman. So I know there, there are some fans of yours there. It, it, it's somewhere in the design department and in the research department as well. Um, That's great. So, I, 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 we're we're about we're over the hour mark. I know that you you've got to go. Um, I, I do have one last question. Sure. Yeah, yeah um, I'll let you kneel. You can each ask one more question if you want. If you have three more questions, let's do that, and then we'll wrap up. So, Paul, Paul brought up music before. Um, do you, do you use external media like when when you're thinking of like character descriptions or like when you're kind of jamming with your artists? Do you ever use music as like or like external media to kind of get into the character's headspace and kind of flesh out their personality? No, <laughs> interesting. Sorry, but you know what? Sometimes you know I have a you know I love music, but writing and music don't always mesh for me. Uh, I find like certainly I cannot listen to music with singing and lyrics when I'm writing. It's just it's too distracting. You know, some people can put on like loud rock and roll and screaming vocals and and write. And I can't. I I, I can do instrumental stuff. I can do sort of floaty ambient music. Um, sometimes I can do like a 
a soundtrack. Like if I'm writing a really spooky story, I'll find some spooky soundtrack, you know, to put on in the background. But very often there's a certain point in the story where I'm so locked into the story that I have to shut everything off, you know, but, but, you know, so if, if I, but if, you know, like I said, if I'm writing some supernatural thing, maybe I'll put on some music from the X-Files or Fringe or something in the background, you know, but mostly once I'm in the story, I'm tuning that out anyway. Mm. You know, now I, I think of writing in a very musical way. There, there, there's so many, so many links between playing music and writing stories and rhythms Absolutely. and tones and mm -hmm. melodies and counter melodies and, and the drum beat and all these things, you know, which Rhythm. we could probably talk about for an hour. Absolutely. So the, I, I approach writing as a musician. It's a beautiful, uh, but in terms of listening to music and, or, or finding the character through music, not necessarily. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's kind of my, my, my dumb quote. I get, I get the it's one. Dumb dumb at all. Yeah. yeah it's it's good. I think it's yeah. a great question. A beautiful answer. Paul. Um, you know, again, thank you for your time. And like, you've been so gracious and you've lived up to every interview and every, like, you seem like the greatest dude. I just want you to know that like from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank Cause you, you, I really appreciate your, your, your uh, time here. I want you to know, like, if people need to check this out, I think they just reprinted it. Uh, you Mark know, Horse, about two years ago, did a beautiful hardcover version of Moonshadow, mm -hmm. uh, the best, the best edition of Moonshadow that has ever been done, with all kinds of extras. I dug through my files and found. Oh, you know, I, I need to get scripts it. Scripts and art and whatever. Um, it may be out of print already because we're talking about putting out a, a, a soft cover version. But I know Sweet. you can you can still get it out there. Right, um, right, right. Um, and Moonshadow was the, was the first really major creator on work that I did. Right. And, and, and it's, a, it's a project that I am still to this day so incredibly proud of. And I, yeah, and I just want to say, well, just again, thank you for all your contributions and people to check out, check this out, go buy it, check it out. It's, it's great work. Again, the comic medium is something I, I love so much. That's why I have a, a, a YouTube channel dedicated to it. And, you know, I eventually will be doing this for, you know, for this, for my show. And I'd love to get you on, maybe deep dive oh, that'd on be it. Great. I will talk about Moonshadow anytime. Maybe we all can right. I'll, I will we get, can get you on Muthon too, as well. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I just, you know, this is a really great example of the comic medium. Not again, I love superheroes. It's my bread and butter, but like the comic medium is so much more. And this is a great example and people need to check it out. And again, Moonshadow, thank you. Um, and all your work too. I mean, again, Frogman to Child Within, it's been, you know, you've been an influence on me, whether it not be, you know, writing wise, just as a, a lover of the medium. You're, I think, yeah, thank you so much. Oh, you are very welcome. Thank you. And to get in on the on the long box polling, um, I have this. It is a copy of Spec 200. Um, it's beautiful. I'm just saying, wait a minute. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we could do that? That'd be okay, great. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to thank you for writing this comic. You're very welcome. It's one of the things I own. Um, that sounds overly hyped, but again, thank you very much for taking the time to sit with us and kind of lay out your thoughts and being very gracious with our questions. Well, they're they're great questions, and I I appreciate it. So uh, to wrap things up, I got to ask. Uh, one last question. What can we look forward to seeing with Ben Riley, Spider-Man, the next three or so issues? Okay. Well, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug everything I'm working on. Absolutely. Most of which yeah. I can't talk about, but I can only hint about. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. What's coming up, well, what's coming up with Ben is that, you know, we've been setting up this thing for the past, you know, couple of issues. Are these these villains coming after him? But how can they, how can it be the Scorpion when the Scorpions in in, in I was going to say Arkham Asylum in Ravencroft? The lines blur. <laughs> Very easy to get them mixed up. So the, the we will get the reveal on who is behind this, and and 
I don't want to give it away. Once we're off, you know, if you want me to tell you, I'll tell you. Um, um, and then it takes, it, you know, the last two issues kind of explode from there. Like I said, I just finished the last issue and I was really, really satisfied uh, with the way it ended uh, on all levels, on all levels. You know, when you're writing a story and you're moved at a certain point, you know what I mean? Like when you're so wrapped up in the emotions that you're kind of like, oh, wow. I know really that, that really got me, you know, and it's like, and because you're the, the characters again have taken on a life of their own. So I'm very happy with the way the story is going to end. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen, obviously. Um, but I, I think if you've enjoyed the book so far, I think you'll be very satisfied with where it's going. As for other things, um, I will be writing a hmm for hmm, uh, <laughs> but I can't tell you that uh, exactly, but you may feel free to project into that as much as you want. And the great thing about everything else I'm working on right now, it's all original creator-owned stuff. I've oh, wow. got five, ooh, five different creator-owned series in the works now with five amazing, five? amazing artists. Five, yeah. Can you tell um, us then, what publishers, by chance? Uh, what, well, I'll, I can only do teases. Um, That's fair. There's a group of them, the whole group of them that we're going to be launching through a Kickstarter. Oh, Okay. Probably in the fall. I can, you know, again, I can't get into the details yet, but I'm working with, I'll say I'm working with Sean McManus on one of them um, and, and, and three other really, uh, really superb artists. And then, the, and then the fifth one is being done. Uh, well, I guess I, I won't say what it is, but Chris Ryle from IDW has a new imprint at Image. So I'm doing, doing a book for him there. Interesting. Um, and then along with that, I just recently wrote, there's a wonderful site called Neotext. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Oh, it's, it's original fiction and nonfiction. It's a great site. Um, and I just wrote a novella for them, a supernatural thriller, which I think sometime in the next few months would be showing up. And I'm just about to sign a contract to do another novella for them. So it's great to be doing prose again. And the last prose I did was, um, was my novel Imagine Alice about 10 years ago. So it's really great doing prose again. So I have all this, all the, you know, it's great working with these characters. Obviously I've had a whole career working with these characters, but it's also great when you get to build your own worlds from the ground up, you know? So this year is a lot of that, a lot of that. And the final thing I'll plug, um, I do these workshops, work, workshops, hopefully they're not shocking, a workshops periodically <laughs> called Imagination 101. Um, I haven't done one in a while. Maybe, maybe toward the end of the year, I'll be able to pull another one together. But I also do something called Creation Point Story Consultation. And it's one of my favorite things that I do. People come to me with, sometimes it's with comic book, you know, I want to do a mini series. Uh, uh, I'm working on a screenplay. I'm working on a book. It's a lot of different things. And they come to me with their work and we work one-on-one -on -one and I help them develop their material. And it's really, really fun. Really, really fun. So anyone's interested in that, they can go to my website, which is jamdmateus.com, and go to the story consultation section. And then the, the workshop section will have any information about upcoming workshops. So, so those are all the plugs. We will. I all that. Oh, sorry. I can't. I just can't wait for you to buy the rights to Frogman and start publishing by yourself. That would be, that'd be amazing. <laughs> you know, we're, we're in an era where, you know, Marvel has to keep cranking stuff out where they're going to. Got to make you know, movies. I think at some point, everything everything will be its own TV show or movie or something, you know? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So with that, we'll wrap up this portion of the episode. Thank you so much. To it was our a pleasure. Thank you guys. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Right. If you would like to come back on again, we would, I think we could probably talk to you for three hours. I mean, it's, it, you know, I, I would be happy to uh, oh. take down the line. You oh. know, um, yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, with that,